The future of health coaching. Opportunity, action, impact. Brought to you by Teleosis Institute, coaching and narrative healing. Hello, everybody. I'm Dr. Meg Jordan, and I'm really happy to present for the summit my ideas in this talk called Health Coaching and Health Human Flourishing, Six Big Ideas to Transform Your Practice. So I present these big ideas because I think they have stirrings in earlier eras, but are confirmed by all sorts of new discoveries today um, from the basic sciences. And it really, they have the potential to transform our worldview and with a good dose of brilliant coaching that helps to transform our behavior and our mindset. So I've always been educated to look at the hard sciences, but I'm also really drawn to the mysterious ways in which the immaterial and the quantum world and the surprising synergies that unfold in our interpersonal spaces. I call it the subtle energy dance. It's between atoms, it's between psyches and two people or even larger and trained groups. That's always fascinated me. So this talk is really dedicated to the clients I've encountered who've come to coaching with a long history of not being able to achieve what they want. In my 30 years in the behavioral fields as a psych nurse, a medical anthropologist, a university professor, and a clinician, I've really been moved by the tougher situations that we all encounter with coaching clients who have faced years of social rejection or chronic pain, and they've often felt personally defeated when it comes to their desired goals and outcomes. My three sets of teachers who I dedicate this hour to are the Dalai Lama, and who said, I believe the purpose of life is to be happy. And it's amazing that he said that after he witnessed his fellow monks being slaughtered while chanting during a raid by the Chinese armies in Tibet. Ending his talk with that heinous situation about it and saying, I believe the purpose of life is to be happy is generous and magnificent and, and an amazing, beneficent place that he talks from. I also dedicate this talk to Ariel Richmond's parents. And Ariel, and they started the Ariel Foundation. and. Uh, this, she was part of the, oh my gosh, amazing six-year-old senselessly, tragically killed in the mass shootings in Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newton, Connecticut. And um, her parents really want to understand why, what is it that allows people to engage in such harmful behavior? And they want to help chart all the physical manifestations they said within the brain that can be imaged and measured and quantified that either lead to violent and aggressive behavior or just a much more empathetic and peaceful and contemplative nature. So have we charted that seed of compassion in the brain? Well, I believe we're right on top of it. And finally, I want to dedicate this talk to Nelson Mandela, who said, do not judge me by my successes, but by how many times I fell down and got back up again. And that was after intense injustice, social pain and physical suffering, suffering after 27 years in prison. So it's these qualities then of compassion of the open heart, the clarity that arises from wise intelligence and advocacy born of social justice. And I think they're all a wellspring for the six ideas that I want to share with you for coaching. Here's the full list of them, and I'll jump in right away with having a sense of purpose. Uh, this may just add years to your life. There was research published in the Psychological Journal, uh, Psychological Science, rather. It's a journal of the Association of Psychological Science, and it's described by the lead researcher, Patrick Hill, of Carleton University in Canada. He said he can find a direction for your life can actually help you live longer. That's an amazing protective effect by having these kind of overarching goals in life. And Hill 
was joined by uh, Nicholas Toronano from um, University of Rochester. They examined all the national data that came out of a study called the Midlife in U.S. Study, MIDAS. There were 6,000 participants in this, and they focused on the self-reported purpose in life. Pretty amazing. So help your clients always move toward a vision or a greater purpose in their lives. It'll buoy them up when the going gets tough, when they can't imagine why they set out on some difficult health goals or reversing some unwanted habit. You know, we hear a lot about moving toward positive emotions compared to negative emotions. In fact, all the work of Barbara Fredrickson that we all know comes down squarely with the conclusion that you should aim for a ratio of at least three to one, if not seven to one, positive to negative emotions. But all those emotions aside, you know, this new data is really asking us to look at the fact that a purpose in life. So ask yourself as a coach, what's the vision I hold for myself as a coach? Ask your client what really matters to you whenever they're stuck with their smart goals or they're beating themselves up, not following through with promised baby steps. This leads me to even consider the work of Gabor Mate about how belonging gives purpose and meaning to lives, even for those folks who've suffered with addiction. And the next big idea for human flourishing is compassion. You know, all the world's great wisdom and spiritual traditions tell us that compassion can be cultivated. We know that. And we see that in spontaneous acts of compassionate kindness, even from youngsters on a team playing sports. Did you ever see one of them suddenly stop and making progress towards a goal and actually help his opponent stand up? It brings a tear to the eye. It's so sweet, you know. So whether it's these spontaneous acts or cultivated through practice, the idea that compassion serves humanity and the planet is neither new nor revolutionary when it's viewed through the lens of philosophy. But what is new is the lens of science applied to compassion. You know, in the early 1980s, we got to witness how the brains of meditating monks with 40,000 hours of practice were different from ours. And that was simple kind of EEG technology. And here we are with Richie Davidson at University of Wisconsin, who looked at loving kindness meditation. Well, he found that these areas in the brain, the hidden recesses, the midbrain, the insula, the temporal parietal junction, these areas lit up like a Christmas tree. And this also happens when we cultivate a focused awareness on the present moment through mindfulness and meditation. We get a different brain structure and function, reshape new ways. Neural wiring is affected. Uh, but there's many ways besides meditation and mindful practice to open up avenues of compassion because I found that the clients who resist closing their eyes and taking a moment in mindfulness practice, you want know really work for them to help this little insula light up in the midbrain, and it's such a protected part of that little brain right in the middle, was actually the work of Marshall Rosenberg in nonviolent communication. This is another way that people can connect to their compassionate natures and even the most trying circumstances. So Marshall said, we have to unlearn what we've been taught and we have to get back to compassion. He felt that that was their natural state. How do I use this as a coach? I say, instead of thinking, dear client, what's wrong with you? That you can't obtain this or that, or you're thinking that somehow your needs are unmet. Instead of thinking what's wrong with yourself or others, start to get a really deep sense of getting out of that rut and looking at your basic beautiful human needs, something that Marshall Rosenberg worked with, with everybody. He said that it doesn't matter if your client is decisive or a bottom line thinker or concerned or cautious or empathetic or cooperative, helping people explore their unmet needs and then following through with the second stage of nonviolent communication can really reawaken their work towards their goals and your work as a coach. 
So number one, help the client make clean observations without judgment about a situation. That takes some clarifying work about dropping blame and judgment. Then two, you facilitate their getting to the root feeling, an actual feeling with an I statement. I feel angry, I feel grief, I feel jealous, whatever it is. Then two, or three rather, you uncover this basic need that is hidden driver underneath that feeling. And four, you facilitate the process in which they learn to make a simple, uncomplicated request that will either lead to a yes, a no, or a negotiated response. So, you know, this will lead to more nonviolent communication in their life. I'm convinced of it. Marshall Rosenberg was a vehicle of hope, just like Carl Rogers' humanistic psychology before him and Viktor Frankl, another merchant of hope, when he said that meaning and purpose can liberate one from suffering. Here's a man who spent time in four different Nazi concentration camps. He was able to come up with this statement. When we are no longer able to change the situation, we are challenged to change ourselves. So cultivating the compassionate brain doesn't just isolate one tiny part. The brain in the nervous system is much more complicated. The neuroscientists always urge us to resist the notion that one tiny part of the brain is solely responsible for one specific action. The words of John Livingston, Joanne Gaffney, in their new book, Relationship Power, really helped me remind me that res to resist thinking that there's a neural correlate to every thought, deed, or behavior. As Daniel Siegel amplified this kind of complexity was this notion of neural integration, the interaction of different areas of the brain that start to weave together more integrative neural fibers due to practicing more interpersonal connection. And that leads to the next big idea, which is the power of networks. You know, call it networks or neural wiring or the vast interconnected web of life. It's this connections in our lives that add immeasurably to richness, health, to pleasure. One of the chief architects of the modern wellness movement is Dr. John Travis. He's a colleague, a friend, and he likes to say the currency of wellness itself is connection, the interconnected network. You know, some of that was actually looked at by sociologist Robert Putnam in a book 2,000 years ago in which he warned about maybe the loss of face-to-face -face connections and how this could shape our society today. The interconnected neural network is so important. Check out these images. One is a brain neural circuitry and the image appearing to be most identical on the, on the left here is one is the cosmos and one is the formation of stars and, and one is actually a mycelial network. Just to show you these parallels here, all repeated fractals in nature. And I love this one too. This is actually a, the network of the metabolic map of the body, all the chemical processes in the body. You know, and this one as well. This is the neural hormonal map that relates to metabolism, but it looks like the London tube transit system map. It's almost identical. A delightful scientist who has an uncanny link in the world of mushrooms is mycologist Paul Stamens, and he's given us a new appreciation for the vast network of a single mycelium fungus. The one he's looking at in this northwest rainforest can underlie almost a full acre. Talk about massive network. Often I'm in awe of the redwoods, the redwood forests that surround my home here in northern California. These networks offer a striking parallel and a fractal likeness between the micro circuits of neural networks and the networks of the interconnected fibers of plants that extend over acres. Even the fairy ring offsprings that grow up around a felled grandfather redfoot whenever that redfoot is, is um, given its first strikes by the ax. This interconnected network responds with circling, with support, with communication, with the promise of the next generation about to spring forth. 
So I love the way that all of it resounds. You know, there's ways in which, even as a medical anthropologist, I've looked at our whole our early ancestors didn't survive well in niches unless they were in a band of small, maybe five to nine clustered together. Because someone had to fend off the predator and someone had to care for the newborns and someone had to keep the fires lit. From the cardiac units to the community mental health agencies, we've all have a deep appreciation now for how social isolation and loneliness should rise to the top of our risk factor list for cardiovascular disease and chronic conditions. Groups of 9 to 18 now are considered important to be together with, uh, to ward off some of these stress factors. So ask your own clients, how do you go about strengthening the social networks that support your desired outcomes? You have to consider that. You have to consider the sea you swim in, our next big idea, epigenetics. This is a straightforward idea about behavior and environment altering genetic expression, meaning which genes are actively turned on to express themselves and which remain inactive. Changing how we show up in the world, changing our phenotype, without actually changing the genes themselves or the underlying DNA sequence. We used to think that the next generation was altered due to some new combination of genetic material that happened in the replicating and copying process during cell proliferation. But we know that poor diets, such as the ones loaded with tasty charcoal barbecue or other poor health habits, such as smoking, you know, all of that will silence some genes while others unfortunately flourish. And they may be the genes that were holding in place uh, some tumor suppression before. But no, now they're that tumor suppressors turned off. And somehow we're also looking at this epigenetics. It's not just lifestyle behaviors but actually our thoughts, how that influences us. So it's, a, it's an amazing complex soup that we're looking at right now. Everything from how we eat, how we behave, our persistent mental and emotional states, maybe messing up something called methylation, link in our DNA expression. How much stress can we take? <laughs> have you ever been on this flight? I have. There's Larry David is actually, in, he's got the look on his face after my last flight. So it's enough to make you all pause. The fact that all these influences, even stress itself, takes a stealth trek right into the microscopic molecular self. And pause is the next big idea. <sighs> Be happy. You know, I used to think that this was actually the start of um, swine flu. <laughs> this is what one biologist told me, or, or neurologist actually, at one conference I was at. I love this photo. This kid is happy. Is this kid going to get swine flu? I doubt it. There's something really beautiful about that little kiss. Anyway, share that with you just to catch our breath, because I know I'm loading a lot of, of uh, fast material at you here. The power of the present moment, big idea number five. The more time you can spend in the present and not ruminating endlessly about the past, what you should have said, what you should have done, what an idiot so-and-so was, or you were, the less time there, the better off, and the less time worrying about the future. The better off for your DNA, specifically the free ends of the linear DNA molecule, the little end cap known as the telomere. And we can thank Nobel Prize winner Elizabeth Blackburn and her colleague, health and psychology researcher Elizabeth Apple at UCSF for their combined work on the DNA polymerase enzyme, telomerase. After it was discovered that a very modest caloric intake of healthy, nutritious diets and certain vitamin supplements and moderate physical exercise all work to deter this process of telomere destruction, which contributes to cell death and aging, 
We found that more telomerase, the enzyme itself, and the eukaryotic cells of younger people helps prevent this premature aging. So how do you get your hands on more telomerase? Well, that's being studied, but like all chemical reactants and enzymes in the body, we don't know the full impact of that yet. But what was very interesting is another study by Apple found that there's another protective factor that can extend the anti-aging effect of telomerase and protect those little end caps that you see here in this slide, little red endings there on the chromosomes. And it's really, it's readily available for you. It's your capacity to be in the present moment through meditation and mindfulness practices, contemplative prayer, deep heartfelt appreciative moments practiced in techniques like heart math. You get to extend the here and now sensations and thereby maybe delay the hereafter. Kind of interesting. Another finding as well by Apple was that looking at the difference between eudaimonic and hedonic values. Can you, can you find values for higher purpose versus values of just gratification for instant pleasure? So ask yourself, how have I been ruminating about the past or worrying about the future? Can I switch the ratio to have more time in the present moment? Ask your coaching client, what do you think the ratio of time is spent between being in the present versus being in the past or thinking about the future? What's the ratio of values that you hold about a higher purpose in life versus gratification, instant pleasure? So I finally want to close with the last big idea, something that I believe is going to sustain us, something that is way beyond a life of selfies and maybe moving into some more social belonging and selecties, and that is the idea of rest and recovery. You know, without rest and recovery, we fall prey to sleep disturbance, physical deterioration, even mood disorders. We're unable to restore, unable to replenish. Our goals remain elusive. Sometimes we move toward despair and hopelessness. So recovery is actually the required echo of activity. It's the ultimate lesson of nature. It's nested in repeated patterns. Again, the fractals, the magnitudes of order from micro to macro are waves of activity and rest from the motion of a wave to the compressed reality of a particle, from the systole contraction of the heart to the diastole in between heartbeats, to the circadian rhythms within the body of fluctuating blood pressure or hormones of activity and sleep, to the big diurnal rhythms of the endocrine system and the infradian rhythms of the lunar cycle. All these rhythms in the universe from micro to the macro, all of them have periods of intensity and alternating periods of recovery. I'm fascinated by this. And about the fact that um, we really need it more than ever. We have wellness programming that's been a complicit partner, I think, in hyper kind of coaching, uber performance coaching, in wrapping up the capacity for endless work and performance. And we need to take a cue from some leading European companies that are insisting that employees unplug and are free of mobile devices and digital connections for at least a day a week or after hours. Some of us can no longer even imagine that being part of a 24-7 online access. The notion of rest and recovery has a potential for being an endangered element reminiscent of a former century. So take heed and build it into your micro moments, your circadian daily cycle, your week, your lunar month. Ask yourself, where is your pause? Where is your rejuvenating moment? How am I engaging with the natural world? Richard Louvre predicted this in his last Child in the Woods book. How often are our kids even playing in the dirt versus playing in a digital world? 
So these have been my six ideas for human flourishing and brilliant coaching. All these ideas are really fluid and interchangeable, and they all hinge on a coaching relationship that is built on trust. Parker Palmer is one of my teachers. He's a teacher of all academics. He says, the soul is shy, and there are spaces on this journey of trust and support where rare moments are designed to welcome the shy soul. We're getting to know more about those spaces that invite the soul to make itself known, and while we move from carrots and sticks theories of human motivation to intrinsic notions of autonomy and competency and purpose and connection, we start to place more value on all these time-honored qualities that a coach can work with, a sense of purpose, the cultivation of compassion, the power of our networks, the epigenetics or the sea that I swim in, the power of a present moment, and my own rest and recovery. So may all these time-honored notions of human flourishing now help you in your coaching practice they are certainly helping me it's been a pleasure sharing all these ideas with you bye bye everybody